0: In 1855, a naturalist, which was the 19th century speak for biologist, came upon an interesting idea while wandering the Malay Archipelago, which is situated between Indochina and Australia. In case you were wondering,
1: I uh, was. it's an it, what
0: I you was. were wondering. <laughs> oh.
2: well,
0: I got you. Thanks. Uh, it's an area that today includes Indonesia, the Philippines, and New Guinea. Aw, yeah, Shannon's favorite country.
3: Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, guinea, guinea pigs. pigs, right, yes. yeah, of course.
0: Which so are descendants uh, of
2: quirky? Yes. Right. He, di-
0: <laughs> he discovered, I can't believe Shannon's here for this evolution episode. What were we thinking? <laughs> <laughs> he discovered that what he called the allied forms occur in contiguous geographic regions. So contiguous just meaning like, you know, there's land between the land and the land it's all connected so, would that just be land just land okay, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. um <laughs> contiguous geographic regions aka land, land.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: so kangaroos all occur in and around australia for example and not anywhere else in the world and you can see this same fact about kangaroos in the fossil record their ancestors go back only in on the continent of australia there are no kangaroo fossils in Iceland. Um, so that means that kangaroos must have some kind of common ancestor in Australia. This all seems obvious to us, but in 1855, this is mind-blowing. Mm. Uh, he went on to notice a line separating the species on the Australian side of the archipelago from the Indochinese side. Despite how close the regions were, birds and larger mammals who couldn't cross the ocean between the one side and the other were distinctly different. Kangaroos were on one side, pandas were on the other. In 1858, this uh, naturalist, who is yet unnamed, was laid up with a high fever. Probably malaria, because, you know, that happens. (laughs) Uh, At the house where he'd established his base camp on the island of Gilolo, which is, uh, I think, where Savannah's planning her honeymoon, right?
2: I didn't even know I was getting married. You're not, but
0: (laughs) haven't you talked about the island of Gilolo?
2: It's just, I like saying it, Gilolo.
0: (laughs) A bold new theory suddenly struck him. It was the theory of natural selection Uh, members of a species randomly adapt to better suit their environmental conditions and live longer and produce more offspring so that those traits get selected for over time today we're going to talk about a man who discovered the theory of evolution more or less the way we understand it today and how he believed that the spirit or the soul could actually fit very naturally into this system of physical bodies adapting to their environments and changing over time. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than Alfred Russell Wallace. Anybody think I was going to say Darwin? Yes. Actually, I was really
2: caught up on that for a split second. Surprise. I had a
0: sound cue I was going to make for
4: that too, but it kind of... A Darwin sound cue?
0: Yeah. What's what's that like? You'll just have to wait. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) The truth is both Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace came to the same conclusions. Darwin came to his theory 20 years before Wallace, but it sat on his desk for that whole period. He suffered terrible anguish over publishing On the Origin of Species, in part because he believed it might push God and the soul out of the cosmos entirely. Darwin might have continued to dwell and dither on publishing his book had Wallace not sent him his paper outlining the theory of natural selection in 1858. It was then that Darwin realized the theory could not be held back any longer, and he unleashed it on the world like a rabid dog driving geniuses and idiots alike to draw all kinds of conclusions from it for generations afterwards <laughs> rabbit like, dogs yeah it sounds like
3: a <laughs> rabbit dog yeah. just
0: forcing you to draw conclusions <laughs> like rabid dogs do speaking of those conclusions <laughs> since then darwin's theories have been used as a club to more or less batter religious believers uh for the century and a half since they've come out some justifiably others less so it might come as a surprise to discover that one of the theory's founding fathers, namely Alfred Wessel Wallace saw no conflict whatsoever between an evolving planet and a spiritually infused cosmos. My name's Rob Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant, uh, and, uh, of the of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, uh, today we're we're here with Shannon Landers, who is filling in as our Grand Master for Olivia. Shannon,
2: hi guys,
0: welcome back. <laughs> uh, and our uh, our Alchemical Actors discussing evolution with us today are Savannah Varette, hello, and Jacob Wheatley, Sabra. Okay, <laughs> today
3: <laughs> he's being a bro today. <laughs> yeah. we...
0: trying on this new persona. Today... <laughs> Today, we elicit the occult confession of one of the sharpest and most open minds of the 19th century, one of my favorite people from the century, which is saying a lot. I have a lot of favorite people of the 19th century, and that is Alfred Russell Wallace. Now, before we launch into this, um, we just online, we've we've received a a message from one of our listeners. (laughs) Yeah, we did. He's suggesting that if we can get this right... He will pledge some money to us on Patreon because he says we always get the pledge off a little little wrong. Uh, <laughs> we can do this right. This particular listener is pledging promising some money. So no pressure, guys. Well.
3: That's why we cost the, the money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Here we go. We, We, the the members members of the Secret Order of of Alchemical alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit
3: ourselves to a full and honest telling of of the history of the occult as far as as we know it.
2: Okay, we yes. look
0: forward to that donation <laughs> yep. while we're on the subject I, I do want to thank uh, Tony on Facebook for leaving us a very kind review and Leslie for joining our family of patrons and for leaving us a review on iTunes we encourage you as always if you are enjoying the podcast to go ahead and uh, send us a message on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter at podcast occult Visit Oh, go ahead, Jen Oh, I was
3: just, it's, it's nice reading nice comments, guys. It makes our day. <laughs> right
0: and. Mean comments don't make our day. Yeah, <laughs> it makes you can, our can night. keep those. makes our night. Oh. Well we read those oh. at night. Yep. <laughs> nice comments That's what during the day out of you. That's what puts me to sleep.
3: <laughs> if we need a healthy balance, yeah. you know.
0: So <laughs> visit us at www.occultconfessions.com. and as always we encourage you to click on subscribe, visit our Patreon, give us a buck a month. It encourages us. Um it takes about forty hours or so to produce one of these episodes. Uh, between the writing and the editing and the gathering of, of voices together to work on these. So, by all means, uh, let us know that you care. Let's get started. Alfred Russell Wallace was born in Usk, Wales.
2: Oosk. Oosk. That sounds like Wales. Wales. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, something to look forward to. On the 9th of January, 1823, into a working class family, like many of us here, he worked as a surveyor and became a self-taught naturalist. In 1845, at the age of 22, he converted to a belief in transmutation, which was actually the early word for evolution. Mm. Darwin didn't like the word evolution, fun fact, because of its occult connotations. Did you? How about mm. this? Um. Something you can impress your friends with. Mm. At the time, evolution was used to describe the progress of the soul. The soul experienced involution when it became incarnated on earth and then evolution as it became perfected spiritually and morally and made its way back to heaven like jesus oh oh jesus was so cute (laughs) he was since darwin's idea was purely physical and took place over generations of species rather than in one individual he didn't want there to be any confusion about what he meant but everyone started calling it evolution anyway (laughs) womp womp (laughs) what can you do darwin Now that he believed in transmutation, Wallace spent the next 12 years searching for a mechanism to explain how it worked. In 1848, he traveled with Henry Walter Bates, a fellow self-taught naturalist. I think most naturalists apparently were (laughs) self-taught, self-employed at the time. Uh, He traveled to Brazil, which was a lot harder to get to in 1848 than it is today, especially from England. You have to use a boat. Several boats. Like a little paddle boat? No, like a Steamboat, but yeah, paddle oh. boats I think eventually will. You think he paddled all the way from <laughs> Wales? Dedication. Okay. Did they have a specific
2: reason why they went to Brazil? Or are you going to get yeah, into it? Yeah, well,
0: uh, places like Indonesia and Brazil uh, were sort of like, there were a lot of species there that we hadn't discovered yet because of the rainforest. Oh. So it's a great place to go like fishing around for exotic and, and uncategorized Makes species. Sense. Uh, Wallace's brother Herbert also came out to help, but he died of yellow fever while he was there.
2: Hmm.
3: <laughs> a
0: little, a little it's like one of the Herbert. worst <laughs> Worst
3: kinds of fevers it's yeah. <laughs> gotta say
0: Quickest cameo on Occult Confessions Herbert lasted a sentence <laughs> uh, Wallace underwrote his research By selling duplicate specimens from his collections To museums and to rich people So yeah, he's basically funding his own journey here hmm. So in order to pay for it He sends like orangutan skulls back Basically naturalists spend a lot of time Wandering through jungles and killing and taxidermying things Shoot and stuff Shoot and stuff Not shoot stuff. Shoot and stuff. And then stuff the things. (laughs) Hmm. It was exactly like trophy hunting, but it had a scientific motivation, so it looked an awful lot like trophy hunting. Still trophy hunting, yeah. Yeah, no matter what. Uh, but there was science. It was si- trophy hunting for science. So
2: it looked okay on a resume.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah more so than those science. Facebook posts that we get today of people with giraffes and stuff.
1: Um,
0: stuffed versions of more exotic species fetched a fair price. So this was how Wallace ended up paying his bills. In 1852, he made the return trip to England, bringing all of those lovely trophy specimens he'd shot and stuffed. But, this is so bizarre, the ship caught fire mysteriously and burned up in the middle of the ocean oh taking God. all of his work along with it hmm that uh, was it <laughs> foul play you suspect yeah. uh it, it could have been sort of just a spontaneous combustion like they were carrying alcohol and things and the flames have spread pretty quickly um but just bizarre this actually happened kind of regularly in these wooden ships that they would just catch fire in the middle of the ocean mm. steamboats
1: well, Same. they
0: were, I guess you could still, Yeah. Well, they would explode with yeah, the coal exactly. and stuff. If yeah. they used a the paddle boat, they wouldn't have had that problem. <laughs> <boat. laughs> yes, right. A paddle boat, I, yes. only you and... go back and tell them. Warn them. <laughs> from 1854 to 1862, then Wallace traveled to the Malay Archipelago, which we opened the episode with, where he discovered his theory of the Allied forms, which he published in the 1855 Sarawak paper, uh, and he argued for the existence of the Wallace line, separating the kangaroos from the pandas. He tells us that in addition to malaria, his revelation about natural selection came through a deep consideration of the theories of Thomas Robert Malthus. Malthus. In his essay on the principle of population from 1798, which was about a half a century before Wallace and Darwin came up with their ideas about transmutation, Malthus argued that human populations remain in balance no matter what we try to do about it. Jacob, why don't you give us some words from Malthus?
4: Whatever may be the rate of increase in the means of subsistence, the increase of population must be limited by it. At least after the food has once been divided into the smallest shares that will support life, all the children born beyond what would be required to keep up the population to this level must necessarily perish, <laughs> unless room may be made for them by the deaths of a grown persons.
0: His idea very basically was that we could never make enough food available for the exponential growth of the human population, and so the amount of humans on Earth had to be checked by either famine and disease or war. When there's too many people, we break out into war over resources. Mm. Basic theory here. Given the scarcity of things and the fact that not everyone in any given species is destined to survive to reproduce, it became clear to Darwin and Wallace that only those best adapted to their environment would manage the fundamental tasks of life When Wallace sent his paper to Darwin, Darwin pulled himself together and presented a co-paper of his work and Wallace's. Wallace was still in Indonesia, joining them together in the discovery. And then he knuckled down to finish on the origin of species. So this is our excuse right now to drop off Wallace for a minute and consider just exactly what was haunting Darwin so badly that he put off writing this book for so very long. Darwin is an interesting guy and sort of an inverted image of Wallace in many ways. He's the fifth child of a wealthy British family, his maternal grandfather was the pottery magnate, Josiah Wedgwood. Does that bring anything to mind, Wedgwood?
2: Oh. No. Nope. Uh, I got caught yeah, up on the really pottery magnate? What?
0: Pot- pottery magnate, yeah. Um, but what? you never heard of, like, Wedgwood, like, um, plates and stuff? Wedgwood oh. Fine china. Mm-hmm. Oh. Have you really? Yeah, sweet. <laughs> His paternal grandfather was a doctor, and Darwin originally went to medical school but he dropped out to go to divinity school at Cambridge, and that's where he met the geologist Adam Sedgwick and the naturalist John Stevens Henslow, who turned him on to studying nature. In 1831, at the age of 22, he set off aboard the HMS Beagle as an unpaid naturalist on a trip around the world, the same age as Wallace when he set off on his first voyage 20 years later. Of course, Darwin's rich, so he doesn't have to
2: kill animals trophy hunt <laughs>
0: he might be doing some of it anyway but uh, yeah he, he right. has there's less less pressure on him five years later he adopted the theory of transmutation in two years after that darwin came up with his first sketch of the theory of evolution also known as the mechanism for transmutation in 1839 he married his first cousin emma wedgwood mm. not an especially darwinian thing to do mm. although in this case i guess a very darwinian thing to do since he is you know he's darwin and he <laughs> He did it. <laughs> and in
2: 1851,
0: he suffered the loss of his daughter, Annie, a trauma that would stay with him for the rest of his life. Seven years later, he would receive Wallace's paper, present, present the paper along with his own, and go on to publish his book. Darwin's religious beliefs shifted over his lifetime. He began as a Christian, which explains the Holy Ram Springer in Divinity School. I like that yeah
2: Holy well, what, what is well, that? that yeah
0: a holy Ramspringer? romspringa is like what amish people go on yeah and they get off the amish plantation where oh. they don't have to be amish they can go into the world and experience oh. it yeah. oh. he okay. went on a different he went on a reverse Ramspringer. he didn't have to be sciencey he could be religious he could be religious this <laughs> is actually what we learned about
4: when i was in private school when there's a brief chapter on evolution and it was just about him and it was only when like him and his like religious background
0: Oh, you went to Christian private school. Let's clarify for Oh, yeah, 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 yes.
4: Whoops. Okay. That's a pivotal point to that.
0: Then he shifted to deism around the time that Origins was published. Basically, he believed that God had set up the universe, but then left it to be governed according to the laws of natural selection, anticipating well in advance the higher functions and achievements of humankind. But he was troubled, haunted, afflicted. He'd read William Paley's Natural Theology, which argued that we lived in a happy world curated why, by our creator, who had carefully attended to the needs of every creature down to the smallest insect, like mm-hmm. a loving father.
2: Has he looked at <laughs> the world?
0: Well, Darwin was, yeah, that was that was, okay. was probably, it was like, Paley, mm-hmm. man. No, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty it's like wrong. lions <laughs> okay. devouring wildebeests and all I hear is like sunshine and happiness out of that. Shannon swatting people flies. People dying and... of the plague. <laughs> yeah, people, yeah, there's a mess out there. In light of Malthus, the natural winnowing of the weakest members of the herd, and the terrible violence we're talking about in the natural world, Darwin simply could not buy into Paley's idea anymore. During the early 1860s, he toyed with the formula that the great diversity of living things was the result of what he called designed laws, with the details left to chance. But he couldn't make the theory work for himself, and ultimately gave up and became an agnostic, which is the saddest thing to be. That's
2: the one where you don't believe no atheists where you don't believe in anything yeah. agnostics when you believe but you don't know what it is right you
0: don't believe you don't know what to believe oh you just go
4: you're just kind of there you're like there's something but you don't even necessarily look that. you're like
0: nah, nah. maybe oh. maybe or maybe not or i don't i don't want to think about it That's a really <laughs> sad <place> to be. <laughs> apologies to all our agnostics out there oh.
1: the old argument of design and nature as given by paley which formerly seemed to me so conclusive, fails now that the law of natural selection has been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of a bivalve shell must have been made by an intelligent being, like the hinge of a door by man. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws.
0: The popular view is that Darwin discovered the theory of natural selection and immediately lost his belief in God. But the truth, as as you've heard, is that his relationship with God shifted over time, growing more and more distant as the years passed. He struggled to maintain God as a rational element of his world, but he simply couldn't manage it. Although Wallace and Darwin agreed on natural selection, there were small but significant differences in the way they understood nature's grand mechanism. For Wallace, the human mind had suspended bodily evolution by creating intelligent substitutes for what might otherwise be required by evolution. Clothing instead of fur, for example. Or Q-tips instead of pinky fingers. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> That's a good one.
0: Or a... iPhones instead of iPods.
2: Yes, the best of all.
0: Right. That's not, The last one's not... Anyway, Wallace spent a lot of time among indigenous people and took a distinctly non-racist view of them, which was crazy unusual for a 19th century British guy. Good for him. Remember the British, any brown person they saw, they just automatically colonized. So for him to take a non-racist view... It's wild stuff.
2: It's refreshing. It is. It is refreshing.
0: He observed how intelligent and artistic the native people were in the various islands and jungles he visited. And this, he said, from the standpoint of evolution, evolution seemed extravagant. If they were as smart, creative, and sensitive to beauty as so-called civilized Western people, but had none of the technological and complex social challenges of Euro-American life, why would they develop these capacities at all? Wallace suggested that there might be an intervening force, a larger mechanism beyond that of nature itself, that anticipated evolutionary changes in addition to those dictated by the immediate environment, our brains can do many things that many of us don't use them for. Calculus, for example. Mm. I don't even know what that means.
3: (laughs) Can you spell it?
0: (laughs) But so could the brains of our caveman and cavewoman ancestors. They could do calculus. Their brains were up to the task. Newton just wouldn't invent it for like 37,000 years, give or take.
2: I'm pretty sure a caveman would just be like, screw this. Or oog, oog. Right. This is what, dumb. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Calculus. Exactly. I need to
0: survive. Why would these brains develop to accomplish skills so far beyond the adaptive needs of the species? Calculus is not going to help you fell a giant sloth or steer clear of a herd of mastodons.
2: Well, was it oh, because did you say giant sloth? Giant sloth. I love <laughs> sloths. They, did, were this real? <laughs> those real? Those were real, yes. They
0: were giant sloths. Oh my gosh. They were giant. Also well, sloths.
3: Well, I guess like as, I don't know, the need to survive wasn't as like a dangerous I guess or not dangerous but you could
0: get run over by a mastodon what do you mean
3: well you're saying like sorry never mind
0: but calculus (laughs) calculus is getting in the way hmm we don't need calculus to survive. You need to worry in the about cave. not being run over by that mastodon, right? And if <laughs> you're stopping, calculus. like if you get out your pencil and paper, and you're like, "How quickly will it take the mastodon to run me over?"
3: <laughs> I guess what I was trying to say, like, we have calculus now because, like, now we don't really have to worry about that type yes. of things happening, so we yeah. have free time to. But
0: Wallace is saying that you could have done calculus even 30,000 years ago. Your brain was developed enough that it could do that. Hmm. Why would your brain have physically developed to the point that you could do calculus when getting out that pencil? The paper will literally mean that you are a red puddle of mush on the Ew. open tundra <laughs> bad plan until... <laughs> wallace proposes that there are certain adaptations that become selected for even though they serve no immediate purpose in furthering the survival of the individual but prove useful much later on these adaptations he attributes to the mind
1: which is able to exercise forethought in the development of the physical being. Darwin held that man had been developed physically and intellectually by continuous modification under natural selection from some ancestral form, whilst I, though agreeing with him regarding man's physical form, believed that some agency other than natural selection, and analogous to that which first produced organic life, had brought into being his moral and intellectual qualities.
0: There's a kind of dualism in this, uh, which is something we'll be discussing uh, in our next episode on the philosophy of consciousness. We aren't just bodies. While our bodies can be explained through natural selection, there's this additional thing, our minds, that can't be accounted for in the same way. The contemporary philosopher Thomas Nagel took up Wallace's line of thought and carried it forward into postmodern terms. Nagel marveled that something as complex as our brains had developed over the short span of time separating the earliest mammals from us today. If you think about the evolution of dinosaurs, that's happening over like tens of millions of Mm -hmm. years, right? But the, you know, tiny rat to us is a much shorter space of time. So Nagel's saying, how did we get from rat brain to our brain in this tiny tiny window. I ask myself that every day. (laughs) He makes a bunch of really fascinating arguments around this idea. Um, He he says there's an important part of the story that's got to be missing. I'm just going to pull two of my favorite arguments from Nagel and recommend his book to you all. It's called Mind and Cosmos. All right, here we go. The first argument asks where our moral sense came from. Where did we get our idea of what's right and what's wrong? Evolutionary arguments tend to revolve around pain. We have an aversion to pain and tend to avoid activities that cause pain. Our sense of what's wrong can then be traced to pain. If it causes pain to me or someone else, then it's got to be wrong. Murder, for example, right? Mm. It it would hurt me if you were murdering me. Hmm. So murder must be wrong because pain is bad. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it makes a whole lot of
0: sense. Uh, But many of our moral sentiments traditionally have revolved around pleasure. Mm. Also yeah Mm. sexing in various ways and forms maybe pain isn't that bad feels good (laughs) but we've moralized it right you can only have sex with you know one person which is difficult it's kind of
3: interesting to think about because obviously if something hurts you you don't want to do it again but like i guess do people just have the natural instinct to like oh if it hurts me like i don't want to hurt someone else well, not like everybody makes, has that.
2: That's though. the idea. Yeah. Well, you
0: know that it hurts you is the idea. The logical idea is that you know that you feel pain, and therefore, you don't want to cause it to somebody else because you assume that they feel the same experience you mm-hmm.
3: do. But like just the fact that like people care if someone else is like in pain, like was that just something we've always had?
0: Well, theoretically, yeah, yeah, and it makes a certain amount of sense on that score. But the sex thing doesn't make as much sense. And even pain, to some extent, can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Building muscle and working hard at something to accomplish. You know, all of these pain-inducing events can be good for us. Let me do a little thought experiment here, and I'm riffing on Nagel a bit, so bear with me and don't blame him. Imagine, if you will, a cave. 30,000 BCE. Tog is living with a bunch of strong, robust cavemen and women, like you and me. But... Tog isn't exactly like us. He was born with a defect that keeps him small and sickly. Ah. Tog. He's also not especially bright. Ah. Uh, uh. Tog leeches off the group's food supply, and while we can afford to sustain him, the act of sustaining him makes us work harder, and gives us less time to reproduce and pass on our excellent genes. He's not a wise elder, Tog. he's not a sexy hunter, Tog. he's not a mighty gatherer.
1: Tog. <laughs>
0: so Tog is sitting in the corner chomping on a Castroides burger, kind of like a giant beaver. And Oog, which is Shannon's cavewoman name, suggests that we just go ahead and gut him and feed him to the Dodos, which wouldn't have been extinct yet because cave people times...
2: Did Dodos eat meat?
0: Shut up, Savannah.
2: Oog, 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 Tog. Oog! Huh?
0: Good Confucian ethics, which I'm sure we can all agree are the best kind of ethics, say we should not kill Tog. It is better to starve to death than kill your neighbor and take his food. And this is because, according to Confucius, it is more advantageous for humanity to maintain order than to allow order to break down into chaos. A community of mutual respect is the highest good. But, if we're thinking in terms of pure, natural selection, here's a member of the tribe contributing nothing to our survival and mooching off of us, making it so we have less time for sex. If we keep him alive, he might even reproduce and pass on his crappy genes. (laughs) So now we have more togs to look after. The vast majority of our listeners, I hope, will tend to agree with Confucius, rather than natural selection on this question. But why would we evolve to feel that way? If evolution is the law of the land, why would it gin up a moral sense that contradicts its own best functioning? Nagel asks where reason came from. This is kind of a fun one, although... It's a bit loopy. Mm. Loops, I no. love.
3: Well... what?
0: <laughs> Shannon loves loops, but Jacob, I don't like loops he at all. Like... Like... Who doesn't I have like? A, loop? I have a fruit loops. loops, Like yeah, no. fruit
3: loops, hula hoops.
0: Stop it. Taking the loop on you know, the road. Funyuns are, you... are loops. Loopy loop-
3: loops, loops, loops on roller uh, coasters. You, you can take, loops take your hands right. and make a, like a loop, like it, a big circle. Or if like we
0: offer to keep Jacob in the loop, stop it. Keep him in the loop. No, not want that. He doesn't want to be in loop. He wants to be out of the loop. Thank you. Nagel says we can't answer the question of where reason came from because reason is the bully in the playground. If we want to make sense of why we use reason to make sense of things, we have to use reason. There's no way around it. a the catch-22? There you are. Framing the quiches itself cogitated by reason. Framing the question itself depends on using our sense of reasoning. But who's to say reason and logic even make sense or are the best way to go about things from an evolutionary perspective? Reason is the way to make sense of things, and so we can never make sense of reason without wondering whether reason is only justifying itself. So we continue to value it. Oh my god. Mm Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. We're like, hey, is reason any good? Hey reason, tell us if you're any good. And reason's like, of course I am! Uh Aha! I am always right. Reason (laughs) is, as Nagel says, the bully in the playground.
2: (laughs) Hey, Intuition. Yes, Reason? Looks like you're trying to hop on the sliding board of understanding. I thought I'd give it a try, yeah. Well, if you want to ride the slide, you've gotta pass the identity test. What identity test? You have to be me, Reason. But I'm not you, Reason. Then I guess you're not getting on that slide. But but I... Oh, don't give me that I want to go on a slide.
0: Alright, enough of that. Let's get back to Wallace.
3: I quite enjoyed it.
0: Wallace observes that the body may be governed by forces and actions like muscle movement, which we might then attribute to chemical and electrical processes in our brains. But Wallace asks this question, what puts those forces into motion? A machine can't stop and start itself without the exertion of an external force. And so Wallace says, such a motivating force must exist inside each of us. If we did not have a will of our own, it would negate the purpose of consciousness itself. We have consciousness, and so we must have a will inside of ourselves, independent of the material processes of the brain and the body. So think about your body as a mechanism, you know, as a mm-hmm. physical machine. He's saying that a machine, if it's entirely physical, can't get itself going. There has to be something else.
3: Some sort of outside force.
0: And that is that animating spirit. He takes this a step further to suggest that the various forces of the universe even, gravity, etc., are similarly set in motion by the will force of a supreme intelligence, or intelligences setting these things in motion. Let's hear from
1: Wallace. However delicately a machine may be constructed with the most exquisitely contrived attempts to release a weight or spring by the exertion of the smallest possible amount of force, some external force will always be required. So, in the animal machine, however minute may be the changes required in the cells or fibers of the brain to send into motion the nerve currents which loosen or excite the pent-up forces of certain muscles, some force must be required to effect those changes. Wallace converted to
0: belief in spiritualism in 1864, and he was an early member of the Society for Psychical Research. This follows logically from his belief in an animating spirit. He believed some of his fellow SPR members were too skeptical because he approached the phenomena produced by mediums as a naturalist would. He went into the seance room and simply observed, with a mind to classifying and categorizing afterwards. For our listeners who haven't had the opportunity to hear about the SPR and and spiritualism, how would you guys categorize these things that he's involved with, the seance activity?
2: Oh, well, the tables would, they would hear, like, tapping noises, tables would float, um
0: floating tables, tapping of messages, mm. tapping sounds that could communicate messages, uh, ectoplasm, hands and stuff.
2: Mm. Yeah, making that one medium could make a hand appear. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah,
0: Daniel Hume. So basically he just um, believes that the spirits of the dead can do things in the physical universe, and he's investigating these things. I don't want any of us jumping to the conclusion that Wallace was being naive here, although maybe he was a little bit. But he was a sharp guy, and he saw a place in the universe for phenomena that he didn't understand, or rather, that he didn't understand yet. He was also a very humble guy. He kept an open mind because he saw so much of what he didn't see. He knew how very little he actually knew, despite discovering one of the biggest ideas in Western science. Wallace was able to believe in spirits because he saw room for non-material forces in the elements of evolution that he didn't understand. And he kept an open mind because he believed that a lot of truth could be missed with a closed mind.
1: As Dr. W.B. Carpenter well remarked many years ago, people can only believe new and extraordinary facts if there is a place for them in their existing fabric of thought. The majority of people today have been brought up in the belief that miracles, ghosts, and the whole series of strange phenomena here described cannot exist, that they are contrary to the laws of nature, that they are superstitions of a bygone age, and that therefore they are necessarily impostures or delusions. There is no place in the fabric of their thought in which such facts can be fitted.
2: So is he saying that people are wrong to not like accept ghosts because or like are things that... in the supernatural realm just because it's not part of their preformed thought?
0: It's not that he's asking that we accept them. But but, but go ahead that like
4: we should open up to the possibility that there's other things that are controlling these forces. Right. I feel like. Mhm. Cuz I well cuz it's good that he's not being so like narrow-minded about it and he's actually like opening up and being like well This could be like potential because I feel like when it comes to like either like science or like spiritual like stuff They tend to try to be very like separate But I feel like you can't necessarily mm-hmm. go by one specific yeah. thing because yeah. it could be multiple factors leading into this
3: It's kind of accepting that we don't have like an absolute answer to things that we might not have the capability to ever get those answers
4: It's almost like it gives him more credibility in that sense
0: this is a theme that's going to come up in, in future episodes in this season. We're going to keep coming back to this. Basically, the idea is if we say these are the laws of nature and we understand them completely and then we encounter things that don't quite fit the laws of nature, Wallace is saying, well, we throw that stuff out. Like, it's not there. We just mm, brush it off.
2: And we can't do but that. But
0: that's wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what Wallace is doing with evolution is he's looking at the sort of origin moments, like what gets the system going. How does the system function? How do we make sense of these things that still don't quite make sense? Mm-hmm. Even though we now have this theory that makes sense for the most part, but has these holes in it. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, if we keep an open mind about the laws of the universe, maybe we can finally make sense of everything. But it might include ghosts and spirits. Mm-hmm. and no. spiritual Is stuff that
3: where about. they bring in the soul?
0: Yeah, now we can have a soul. In fact, he's, he says we need the soul. To make sense of what's happening with us, what gets our bodies going, what gets ourselves going, our consciousness going. What
3: makes us unique.
0: And, yeah, drives us forward, evolves us.
3: Hey, have you guys ever noticed all the dog hair all on the the microphone?
2: All I can do is look at it when we do these things. Yeah, just so little much. white Cora hairs, little dog. I want to pluck it all out, but then next time it'll all be back. Is <laughs> Is there,
3: she has,
0: it's a never-ending job <laughs> like, yeah she does have her own podcast you, yeah, have you listened to it? I have actually I it's have,
3: doing a lot better than ours actually yeah, I, <laughs> if,
0: um, brothers, I actually haven't listened what's it called?
4: Uh, it's called The Bite um it's about Ooh. things that Cora may eat, like dog foods or toys or just anything she can really bite. Anything she would put her mouth on. Basically. Most things. It's, really, it's a really good podcast. I've heard that Tommy. it's in
2: the top 10,000 on Stitcher. Oh, yeah.
0: wow. Yeah. We have yet to break the top 10,000 on Stitcher. You should take some notes. Okay. <laughs> we need to start talking about things that we put our mouths on more often.
2: Oh, oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you guys asked for it. Not that kind of you podcast,
3: Rob.
0: Well, sometimes <laughs> it really hours. is. Yeah,
3: you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I after
0: mean, hours. we can get into that. Wallace had a lot of good ideas before and after his conversion to spiritualism. He advocated for women's rights, super cool, Yay. in the Yay. 1860s and 70s, like, way ahead of the curve, and against inherited wealth. Okay, now,
2: mm-hmm. if you
0: believe in evolution, why would you argue against inherited wealth?
2: Because it gives somebody a head, like, um, oh my god, a head start. Jesus Christ.
0: That isn't earned by their, like it sort of distorts the system, throws it off. It gives advantages to people who aren't necessarily biologically or intellectually advantaged by their circumstances. Compared to like other people. Yeah. In 1876, he published a two volume masterwork, The Geographical Distribution of Animals, in which he laid out all the known families and genera of the highest order of animals and their geographical distribution across the globe. This book actually served as the primary textbook of the popular subfield of (laughs) zoogeography, which I know you all are studying, for 80 years. For most of his life, Wallace's social activism and relatively eccentric open-mindedness on issues like spirits made him an outsider in the scientific community, despite the fact that Darwin advocated for and defended Wallace throughout the course of his life. Oh, that's good. He did, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wallace was pretty much an outcast among other scientists because he had all these wild ideas that we're talking about, even though logically, philosophically, they're not wild at all. Mm -hmm. But Darwin saw him as still a perfectly valid, reasonable scientist.
3: Get you a friend like Darwin, guys. (laughs) Yeah, uh,
0: stick with you through spirits and... (laughs) This may explain why Wallace has been largely overshadowed by Darwin more than a century and a half on even though he played a central role in discovering and articulating one of the most profound theories of modern human thought. And that's why we call this episode Evolution's Ghost. Not only are we talking about the ghost in the machine that Mm -hmm. we've been discussing here, the Animating Spirit, but Alfred Russell Wallace himself. He died on the 7th of November, 1913. There were calls from his friends that he should be buried in a place of honor at Westminster Abbey. But his wife, following his wishes, had him buried at a small cemetery in Broadstone, Dorset, hmm. and that's the story of Alfred Russell Wallace and the soul as it exists potentially in the system of evolution. Hmm. Let's uh, let's close this one out, Shannon. You are our substitute grandmaster. Oh man! Do you let's think see. you can do this?
3: Oh God! What did she say? She <laughs>
0: hereby adjourn us. All
3: right, I hereby adjourned this lovely group of elk. <laughs> chemical actors
0: sort of improv in here yeah
3: these lovely group of people until we come together and do this again
0: Nice, that's pretty close. Right? Yeah, I mean, there was a, the loveliness is not usually part of the, the official <laughs> oh, yeah, ritual. <laughs> no, but
2: doesn't. I guess it's
0: not so... We are lovely. <laughs>
2: Thank you. Uh, Someone has to acknowledge it. <laughs> uh, let's just re- that's why I'm here, remind our listeners
0: once more to visit us on our website, www.occultconfessions.com. Hop on Patreon, give us a donation of a dollar a month, and please do subscribe. Uh, doing the voices today, we had uh, James Kaplanches as Tog, and also Darwin. Uh, Jacob here was sitting in on discussion and did Robert Malthus for us.
4: Yep, later, brah. Cool. Yeah,
0: I (laughs) forgot
3: he's the bro
0: for... We had Oog. Shannon was Oog. Yes. And also Intuition. Oh, yes. Savannah playing Reason for us and sitting in on discussion. And we had Brandon Walls playing the role of Alfred Russell Wallace. Okay, my name's Rob Thompson. We thank you very much for tuning in to this, our second episode on The Soul. On our next episode, we explore the uh, weird philosophy of mindless zombies and thinking fruits. Thinking fruits. 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 I love smart fruits. All right, we'll catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. (laughs)